0: Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale, July 21st, 2021. I'm Ryan Penagos, a.k.a. Agent M.
1: And I'm Tucker Marcus.
0: We are here to tell everybody about the new comics on sale this week. We're going to run through our favorite picks, then we will get into all the other books out this week. We'll hand out some awards. Tucker, being the award master, will uh, let us know what the awards are this week. We will get to some other releases on Marvel Unlimited, the collections, and then get into our big reading club with Sean and McGuire. Sean comes on to talk about E is for Extinction, the new X Men run, um, and of course, this is a big episode, number one hundred and fifty nine. <laughs> and Jazz has pulled some covers for us of other landmark. 159s in Marvel history. Tucker, what sticks out for you?
1: (laughs) I, as a big Hammerhead fan, Amazing Spider-Man number 159 shows Hammerhead bursting through both Spidey and Doc Ock with his hammer-like head. And the best part is it's one of those with balloons on the cover, which I miss. And it says, hmm, maybe I'll do what I imagine hammerhead sounds like he's like
0: if it doesn't sound like frank tieri then i don't even understand <laughs> yeah
1: i mean come on it's pretty right out of my way you pitiful ass bins. hammerhead is coming through uh, <laughs> there was
0: more jesse ventura <laughs> than frank <laughs> tieri and i'm okay with it actually uh yeah looking at the 159s i gotta lean into uncanny x-men 159 which was when the x-men were facing dracula and storm gets bitten it's got this beautiful cover by bill Sienkiewicz. man so freaking cool All right, let's get into our books this week. We have uh, three picks that we want to get into. The first pick being Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 28. It's written by Saladin Ahmed, art by Carmen Carnero, colors by David Curiel, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And we're in the middle of the Clone Saga. This is actually the final part of the Clone Saga storyline where Miles is facing off against uh, Salim and uh, the other two clones of his uh, Salim is like the evil mastermind of the the three clones who he's like kidnapped Miles' baby sister and it's it opens with like panic and horror as Miles is trying to figure out what's going on and you get this big showdown on a bridge it's a great issue it's just rock solid way to tell a very important character building arc, give you a lot of big suspenseful moments, maybe new revelations and new characters that will kind of fold into uh, a regular book. I think it was done exceptionally well. It is exactly what I wanted out of this story. You take something that's called like the clone saga and has all this history, but you tell this much more compact, very personal, upsetting in a lot of ways story. It's just got this like ominous feel to it. And I thought, great creators. And I want to shine the spotlight. Everybody should be reading Miles Brown Spider-Man. It's really freaking good right now.
1: 100% agree. Great, great pick. And I'm following that up with my pick this week. <laughs> Moon Knight, number one. I think this one uniquely sort of caught the attention of comics Twitter. When the cover came out, ridiculous cover by Steve McNiven, and it all started there. And then the creative team was announced. And that is writer Jed McKay, artist Alessandro Capuccio, colorist Rochelle Rosenberg, and letterer VCs Corey Pettit. This is obviously, it's a new number one. If you're curious about Moon Knight, if you've heard people talk about Moon Knight, this is an excellent book to pick up because it tells the story of Moon Knight, the lore of Moon Knight, how this character came to be in a really perfectly succinct way. You know, as with any Marvel character, there's loads and loads and loads of history, but we dive straight into it here. We get all the important beats and we're off. We're off running. The pacing of this issue, I think, is really masterfully done. And it's. Good God, gorgeous! This is one of the most impressive, just wonderful, wonderful to look at books that I think we've seen in a while. So, shout out to Alessandro! Shout out to Rochelle! I love seeing Rochelle in a book like this; um, just crushing it. And I think, especially for a series like Moon Knight, colors are super important because Moon Knight sort of occupies this his own monochromatic space just in black and white, you know, very subtle touches of color here and there, depending on the lighting, depending on where he is, things like that. But it's a really striking book just by nature. So to be able to fold that in while also keep it tonally specific, keep it in this street level, sort of noir superhero type of feeling is a big achievement. This is a book with a ton behind it. There's so much to love in here. And I think this is one that I have really, really high hopes for going far into the future. This creative team is excellent. This is a character that I feel like it's this character's time. And I think people are ready for a big Moon Knight series. So, Kanshu willing, this is the first of many, many, many Moon Knight issues. And uh, what a start.
0: I think people are going to be talking about Moon Knight over the next however long until the original series on Disney Plus, And Thinking about that, you're gonna have a lot of new Moon Knight fans. And this occupies a really great space of being able to satisfy someone who knows nothing about Moon Knight and also someone who knows a lot of history and it like it does a great job of, of filling all those like buckets pretty, pretty well. All right, let's move to our third pick this week, which is <coughs> Thor Annual Number One. And look, I'm in the bag for Mr. Aaron Cooter. Anytime. You give me a book by Aaron, I'm in. And when Aaron Cooter is not just drawing the book, he's also writing it. I am like finger going pew, 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 pew. (laughs) I'm all about it. He inks some of the pages, but there are some sort of like, I don't want to call them flashbacks, but like side flashes side backflashes flashes <laughs> that are inked by Cam Smith that are intentional to give the, those pages a little bit of a different feel. Colors by Chris O'Halloran, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Uh, and this is, again, another one of the Infinite Destinies sort of through-line books. The idea being here, are we meeting characters who now have an Infinity Stone connected to them, or is this a different story? We also have a backup Sort of the secondary story of the book, which does specifically tie into a search for the Infinity Stones by Nick Fury. We'll get into that in a second. But this is also like a a stealth War of the Realms tie-in. It's almost like an epilogue epilogue. Basically, we visit the Light Elves and they're about to have a a big celebration saying like, thank you to the Asgardians and Thor and the League of Realms who helped stop Malekith and the, the whole War of the Realms that went on. It follows up on that. It's a big celebration, a big thank you, a big party, and you get all these characters, but there's something sinister at the core. We are introduced to a new character who sort of infiltrates the party, not as a revenge plot against you know Thor and the Asgardians, but it's a really cool idea. This character comes from a different reality, and he's basically a scout, a very powerful scout, who goes out and searches for chaos and violence and terror. That's what his people feed on. And he was like, I was about to leave before the War of the Realms. I thought you guys were, this is boring. And he's like, but then you yeah, had the War of the Realms. I was like, yum, 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 yum. Gonna come party here. So he basically tries to foster a little bit more violence and chaos. And it spools out into this really cool story where he enlists another alternate reality Thor. He, he takes a Thor from its own timeline, a little bit in its past. And he says to this Thor, Loki's going to do all this terrible stuff. You need to kill Loki. And he sets this Thor down a path of killing Loki and then darkness and getting, it's like, it gets worse and worse and worse. He's like, there's a Mangog in there. And it's beautifully rendered because Aaron Cooter is one of my favorite artists. And you see like how much work and care and love he puts into every single like piece of this. There's stunning panels throughout. He does something simple as like, like a group of elves walking and there's like a cat with wings and there's all these different elves and everybody feels so vibrant. It is it is truly a very special book here. It's um, emotionally like really intense at times, but it's very funny. Hawkeye shows up. So you get some really great comedy moments. It's just Aaron reminding us that he is one of the best around. It's spectacular. It is a sight to behold. And on top of that, on top of this amazing storyline, introducing new characters and concepts and things that feel like we'll see pop up again in Thor, we have the next part of the Nick Fury storyline, which is by Jed McKay and uh, Juan Ferreira, which, come on, we're talking about amazing artists and amazing teams. Most of this story by Juan and Jed, you have to turn your comic sideways. And it's done in like, like an Adam Cuberty feeling, like taking it and you know subverting your expectations of what a comic can do, what it should do, how it should be read. And it is amazing. It's got sharks, it's bloody, it's wild. It ties into a little bit of Heroes Reborn and Heroes Return. And friggin' great. This is one of my favorite issues of the last couple of
1: months. 100%. Really, really fun week this week. And we will dive into more of these Marvel mags as we go into everything that's hitting shelves this week. And as we go through them... I decided to call this week's award the buy-in Pinagos Award, as in, these are issues you need to be buying. I like it. Okay, thank God. I like That's it. one person <laughs> who, who does. Um, and we're kicking things off with Alien number five. This is the most consequential issue of Alien that we've read so far. This one ties really in such a fun way into aliens and most delightfully for me into Alien 3 in some really interesting and fun ways. Not only that, but we get some like crucial pieces of the backstory of our main character here. It's really, really interesting. It's one of those issues where, okay, we're five in, and then suddenly everything we've been through has more weight. Suddenly you have a greater appreciation for the story that's being told for where we're headed next. And it's one of those, yeah, that gives you ammunition retroactively as well as what's going on into the present and most definitely into the future. So yeah, great issue of Alien.
0: Yeah. All right, we've got Captain Marvel number 30 here, which is the conclusion of this storyline where Carol is trying to figure out how to stop this big, bad enemy that followed her from the future, how to stop this character from taking over and he's really powerful, very dangerous, very scary and she like makes a mess of things and gets involved in stuff and gets the crap kicked out of her. Luckily, she's got some help in here. It's it's full of really great moments. I love the highs and lows that Kelly Thompson writes for Carol Danvers. Like she brings her so high and in the same issue can bring her so incredibly low and you you're with her the whole time and that's kind of what we want out of our comics. My buy-in award goes to, I'm given two, one for a kiss, because the kiss is something we needed here. I feel much better about <laughs> comic books because of the kiss that happened. But also to Jamie McKelvey for coming in here. You know, he created the, the current Captain Marvel look, redesigned her costume, helped do a whole bunch of work. So he comes in and writes and draws a story featuring Carol and Kamala Khan. It's so good. And it's another one of those things where we are reminded of how great our artists are as full storytellers. And when you let someone like Jamie, who has done a lot of work outside of Marvel over the last couple of years, a shout out to some of the the work that he's done with Kieran Gillen and outside of Marvel, man, it's so frigging good. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And if you look at Jamie's work on even young Avengers, and then look at this you can see someone who has matured and grown immensely as an artist and a storyteller over just a few years.
1: Mm, Yeah. Next up, we have extreme carnage phage. Number one, there is some really, really cool stuff that goes down in here. And look, I got to say, this is written by Steve Orlando with pencils by Gerardo Sandoval. These people know what the hell they're doing. They know Comics, they know how to put a story together, and you're right with them from page number one. And you're just along for the ride. It's one of those that I think embraces the spirit of the title Extreme Carnage. And, you know, in that way, it sort of has this like great 90s kind of wonderful, like over the top spirit to it and crazy stuff. No holds barred. They are not holding back with these Extreme Carnage issues
0: mm uh, Shout out to Devin Lewis, uh, one of the editors on all the Carnage books. We've been texting back and forth about toy collecting. He's a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles toy collector, and, and so we've been geeking out about some stuff. It's It's been fun. Uh, all right, let's move along to Gamma Flight number two. This one, I love the Immortal Hulk vacation of Hulk's universe here, and how creepy and weird they get to be on these books. Uh, especially because, you know, you have Al co-writing this alongside Crystal Fraser. But my buy-in award goes to the final page, which has got a cool reveal. But Lan Medina, the artist here, does a great job of like, like a big full shot of someone you're like, oh, dang, can't wait to see where number three goes.
1: Uh, Next up, we have Guardians of the Galaxy number 16 and The Last Annihilation Begins. A huge story to be told in here by Al Ewing. Right alongside him is Juan Fergueri, who brings it on this art. This is one of those books where you wrench up the action and you go for a big cosmic scale story like we have going on here. That also means you wrench up the emotional ties you have to it, the intimate moments, the character moments, just those little moments of of conversation, of hugs, of love. Uh, it's really, really cool. And in that way, when both of those are playing um, at their full potential, there's just so much to love in here. And I think it's all carried off really, really beautifully. So Bayan Panagos Award goes to, uh, I think, the entire creative team here in this issue.
0: Yeah, Let's move on to some mutant stuff with Marauders number 22. This one is a little bit of a post Hellfire Gala cooldown issue, but it's got some very important stuff. Big things for some of the core Marauders cast, specifically Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost. There's a lot of emotional things that are going on there and and revelations. And the Stepford Cuckoos, I think my buy-in award goes to the Stepford Cuckoos and their place in here, like the dancing to the sort of like figuring out how to solve a problem and help someone who maybe doesn't deserve to be helped, but that's not the point. They are better people than some of the others out there. And it's great. I love this book. 100%.
1: Uh, Next up. We have New Mutants number 20. The buy-in Panagos, you go buy this issue for Cosmar. One of the coolest, weirdest, most New Mutant character designs that you'll see pop up in a book. And I love the introduction of this character into New Mutants here as we are telling... Another story that like I think captures the spirit of New Mutants in that way that you feel the family. You feel it in every single page and every single interaction. And you say that in both good ways and in bad ways, but all of it overall adds up to either adding that feeling of community or that feeling of risk. And I think that's something that this book does really, really well in terms of that balance.
0: Let's move along to Greptil number three. I want to give my... Buy in award to Reptil and his family, his two cousins. They make a great trio. They're a lot of fun. There's a, a a mix of like what feels like real familial connections and thoughts about how they interact with each other, with their larger family, with their culture. This is a a book like kind of wholly unique toward a lot of other stuff that we're putting out right now. And I think it's going to be wonderful for younger readers to pick up and check out and really get involved in what a character who can friggin' turn into any dinosaur can do. That is the coolest power in the world. I say that as someone who has like Godzilla tattoos, which started with my love for dinosaurs as a kid. And i have forcing my child to love dinosaurs. And she does.
1: (laughs) Awesome. Next up, we have Savage Avengers number 22. I think especially in the era of Jerry Duggan writing X-Men. And he's simultaneously doing this series that is so weird and so like fantasy monster, Conan the Barbarian, so like specific and just beautifully crafted in clay and just hung out there in its own space, in its own time, in its own thing. It is entirely its own thing. I just love that. And I'm just so, so grateful because uh, it's really unlike anything else. We get like a weird Conan, Sumerian history version of Ghost Rider in here, riding a giant like spider, absolutely badass and awesome and weird, exactly what I'm talking about. And then as we get to the end, Patch Zurcher, who brings the art, goes freak style even more. So Brian Panagos Award goes to Jerry and Patch. And just in general, how weird and how specific and how beautiful this book is.
0: All right, we're into Star Wars territory with the first of two Star Wars books this week. We've got Star Wars Darth Vader number 14. My buy-in award goes to the return of that rascally little droid, IG-88. The big boy's back right in perfect time for War of the Bounty Hunters. We're also uh, sort of introduced to a new character, like a cool part of the Empire. And one of the Emperor's like tools in his tool bag. Of course, he has Vader. We have met the... Um, sort of the the assassin that he hired a couple issues ago, but now we've got uh, the blade behind the curtain and she's dope as hell, y'all.
1: 100% and we are continuing on in the War of the Bounty Hunters with Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters, Jabba the Hut, number one. That's right, Jabba coming at you, joining the party. Artists Ibrahim Roberson and Luca Pizzari managed to make Jabba disgusting again. (laughs) Jabba the Hutt is so, like, in everyone's mind. We can instantly, we could draw him on a piece of paper. We know exactly what he looks like. You can immediately picture him. He's just part of, like, our cultural memory. So that gets my buy-in award is being grossed out by Jabba the Hutt again. I love it. He truly looks like he's a a melting candle. I love it. It's exactly what Jabba the Hutt should be.
0: All right, last new book of the week is X-Men Legends number five. If you are not familiar, X-Men Legends brings in... Classic X Men creators telling stories that fit in the continuity of their original runs. We've seen stuff from X Factor and uh, 90s X Men. And now we are into a 90s X Factor storyline, which fits in sort of right near the beginning of the run that Peter David, when he jumped on and created the new team, they were a government group of mutants with Havoc and Polaris, Strong Guy, Quicksilver, Wolfsbane, Multiple Man. But this one uh, is great. You've got lots of Todd knock detail and wonderful stuff. You've got a group of uh, Latverian mutants who are just like, Latveria sucks for mutants. Rah! And then you're like, it probably does. I'm with you guys. Like, I was immediately <laughs> siding with them. Uh, but my buy-in award just goes to the whole thing for bringing us back to this era of X Factor books, which is um, something I loved, loved, loved as a kid.
1: Absolutely. All right. That's what we have for all the new Marvel comics headed your way this week. Uh, And now looking over to the collection section, we have The Union, The Britannia Project, and Union Jack. But the one that sticks out to me is, hands down, King and Black Namor, That's Kurt Busiek, folks. And uh, it's one of the best of all time, writing one of the best characters of all time. Loved those issues. And that's going to be a great one to read in collection.
0: Also, big shouts to Generation X Epic Collection, back to school. That is Chris Bishalo Mm. dunking on fools. (laughs) Um, All right, let's go to Marvel Unlimited. Tons of stuff in Marvel Unlimited this week. Some more King and Black tie-ins. There's an issue of Thor and Loki double trouble. Most importantly, I want to point out Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow number 1 is now in Marvel Unlimited. Chip Zdarsky, Pascual Ferry. We've been loving it. If you haven't caught up, you can read it on Marvel Unlimited. All right, from Marvel Unlimited to uh, some wonderful early 2000s X-Men stuff. Tucker, are you ready for our reading club?
1: <sighs> oh, man, am I ready? We have one of the best sort of most consequential issues of an x-men book ever and we're talking about it with one of the biggest x-men fans i'll say it ever that's shauna Maguire. so so much to dig into so let's go do that right now with Sean Maguire.
0: Tucker, you are on the West Coast, along with our guest this week, Shawna McGuire. Hello, Shawna. Yes. Hi,
2: Ryan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: Very exciting (laughs) to have you on the show because you chose a ding-dang delight of a Reading Club pick this week. What'd you pick?
2: E is for Extinction by Grant Morrison. It's uh, New X-Men, issues 114 to 116. Yeah.
0: We are actually, depending on when this episode goes out, we are hitting the 20th anniversary of the on-sale date of this issue. It was May 16th, 2001, in which New X-Men 114 by Grant Morrison, Frank Whiteley, Tim Townsend, and crew was released. So, Sean, what do you remember about your first time reading this? Were you reading all the X-Men books regularly? Did this bring you back? What was your situation?
2: So I had, in a fairly dramatic because this was 20 years ago. So I was like 17. I was I was having a big, <laughs> big feelings. The X-Men at that point in time, we were just coming out of 90s X-Men, which was not a very welcoming place for a female reader. And so I fairly dramatically in my childhood comic book store broke up with the X-Men. I dropped every single X title from my poll list. And then I was staying with a friend in Jersey City, New Jersey, and her roommate brought out the trade paperback of the Grant Morrison run. And uh, Mayrov went, you like that Emma Frost girl, right? She was your favorite when you were reading Gen X. I'm like, yeah, I, I love Emma. Emma is great. Why? They don't they don't use her. They, they break her every 30 seconds. Why don't you look at this? And handed me the E is for Extinction arc. So I blame Grant Morrison completely. For the fact that when I moved to Seattle, I had to move 600 pounds of marble trade paperbacks.
1: <laughs> wow. For you personally, was this a, a touchstone moment as a fan and, and creatively?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, Grant Morrison did so much to define who these characters would be rolling into the modern age. We can't forget their pasts. But one of the detriments of modern comics as an art form and the way that it has developed is that for a long time in the early days, people weren't creating with the assumption that we would even be able to read these issues in 10 years. They were on cheap paper. We didn't have mass trade paperback formats. You couldn't really get those reprints. So you wrote it today, you printed it tomorrow, you forgot it by Friday. So if you go back to the earliest things, there were just huge numbers of of, choices creatively made that you can tell the creators did not think anyone else would have to live with ever. And some of them have to do with the way that attitudes have changed. You know, if you go back to earlier X-Men and read the way that Scott behaves toward Jean, by the standards of the time, it was a very romantic and loving relationship. By the standards of the modern day, it's a very bad relationship. It's borderline abusive at times. He's kind of a jerk, but he's not supposed to be. We as as readers are supposed to accept that they have this true pure love and always have because these characters haven't actually existed for 50 years in their continuity. And so what Morrison kind of did was come in, acknowledge that those earlier characterizations happened and then put them in a closet and give us a modern version. And no one has done as clean of a job of updating those characters since. Everyone's been building on what Morrison built. You know, I'd argue even Hickman is still working in some ways from Morrison's foundations with the character beats.
0: Yeah, I I think it even goes into the title. It was like, this is new X-Men. They continue the numbering, but there's a big difference there. But it's also interesting, to your point He even acknowledges the most recent history and builds upon it in a way and folding it in that like appreciation and understanding while still boldly pushing forward. You know, there's the stuff with Apocalypse that had happened months beforehand. It's really interesting and just how it starts too. It's We talk about Grant, of course, but I have to talk about Frank Quietly as well, because I had the pleasure of hanging out with him for a couple of days at a convention in Brazil You have a sense of the artist, and then you see them in person, and he was a ding-dang delight there.
2: Frank Quietly, from everything I've ever heard, is a gentleman and a scholar, and his art is fantastic. It's part of what I think made the new X-Men run that he and Morrison did together such a hit so quickly, because he's got a very distinct style. You know, everyone looks kind of similar in a certain way, which makes the Stepford Cuckoos even better in Quietly's hands. But he draws people with respect, which is a weird statement to make. They have weight and mass, and the women aren't just there to be a delivery vehicle for cheesecake. And that's really, really nice. But I think you said it. where it begins is kind of establishing. Starting out by nuking Genosha is a baller move. <laughs> like... Oof. It hurt real bad. I think that was the highest mutant death count to date when it happened. Yeah. Just the highest single, let's let's take them down, um, which made the decimation a couple of years later even funnier in hindsight. But uh, having that as an opening, you cannot look at that and say, this is going to be a small story. E is for Extinction came out the gate swinging and saying, we're going to be huge. We're going to ch- change the status quo in ways that the X universe still has not recovered from 20 years on. Mm -hmm.
1: Is that something that you find yourself doing on certain titles, with certain characters, on certain books, where you say, maybe this one has a softer entrance. This one has a beginning that's a little quieter. We're going to build the threads. We're going to hit some really big moments later on. And other stories you say, right away, we're going for it. No holds barred. We're going to make some big decisions and we're going to hit the reader over the head with this right away. Because to be honest, when I think of your work with Gwen, I think of the latter. I think of like immediately hitting the ground running. Boom, you're in it. You're going, grabbing the reader by like the scruff of the neck and pulling them along for the ride. What are your thoughts on that?
2: While I am given occasional opportunities and chase them as hard as I can, I don't get a lot of guarantees. And um, I think we will all forever resent COVID for a million reasons, but I will forever resent COVID for breaking the momentum that we had actually started to build on Ghost Spider. Because Gwen Stacy is, you know, Ryan watched me in the Museum of Popular Culture here in Seattle start crying when faced with the original artwork of the death of Gwen Stacy. She has been incredibly important to me for my entire life. She is probably my second favorite comic book character ever, second only to Emma Frost. And uh, I wanted to stay on that title for 100 Issues. I had big arcs that my editor and I had sketched out, which actually could allow me to make some status quo changes. That wasn't meant to be a massive downer. No,
0: And I know, but like just knowing you and knowing your passion and knowing like how much you put into your stories and your books and, and everything. It's like those shots, I'm excited for readers to get the opportunity to experience them again. Let's let's bring it back around to New X-Men, and specifically Emma, because you mentioned her and you mentioned how much you love her. When did that love for Emma start to blossom?
2: I mean, really, the love for Emma kind of started with Generation X. Generation X, the X title, was kind of a follow-up to New Mutants. It's set at the Xavier Academy. The headmaster at the time, the shared headmaster, was Sean Banshee, and Emma Frost came in. And it was the first time we got to see her really treated fairly as the kind of complicated character she would have to have been all along to be in the position she was in when we met her. And it was the first time we got to see her wear clothes, which was really nice. I am just as shallow as anybody. I think everybody's got a certain level of shallowness. And as a little blonde girl growing up in the 80s and 90s, when the big thing about blondes was all blondes are stupid. If you're a blonde, you're a Barbie girl. You're here to be the sex interest, to be the cheesecake, to be how Emma was initially presented. I would latch onto any blonde character that was actually wearing a sweater. Like that was just, can they be smart? Can they have a brain for 30 seconds? And Emma is very smart when she's allowed to be. But her passion for taking care of young mutants as a writer is something I really empathize with. The idea that these are people you have to protect and shepherd and help to become the best possible versions of themselves. That's what I aspire to. You know, I want my ex-team to protect and take care of and beat the living crap out of, but that's what a danger room is for and help to become the versions of those characters that'll still be selling action figures in 30 years. And Emma does that.
1: In a similar vein, I I just kind of want to present a platform for you to, to share your thoughts on Cassandra Nova. In this story because speaking of characters that really just grab the story by the throat what do you think of when you think of the cassandra nova of this story
2: honestly i think we need another word for retcon because her existence is absolutely a retroactive continuity thing she has to ripple all the way back to the beginning to make any sense but once she's there she makes so much sense without contradicting anything That there should be another word for a retroactive continuity choice that doesn't destroy but builds continuity. Cassandra Nova makes absolute sense. She makes the existence of Onslaught make more sense. The fact that Xavier would have that psychic weakness to be exploited, however, accidentally, so much holds together better once you stick Cassandra in there. She's brilliantly handled. I loved seeing a female villain who was just freaking villainous. Right. She is evil. She doesn't make any bones about it. She has good reasons to be evil, but cool motive still murder holds up. And she's a female villain who is never sexualized in any way. And I, I know it's a little odd for a female creator who is this hung up on Emma Frost to be also very hung up on, we shouldn't sexualize all the women, but we shouldn't. The ones that are, it's fine. Emma, it makes sense for her, for her character, for her background, for her choices and the choices she would make, but it does not make sense for every female character to be presented that way. And so often, if you get a female villain, especially in comics, she's immediately snaking her way across the panel in her tight spandex suit and presenting herself as, I'm sexy and that's what makes me bad. And the fact that Morrison didn't feel the need to somehow make Cassandra Nova a hot version of Charles Xavier is delightful.
0: Yeah. I, I want to make sure anybody who's not read this, strangely enough, read the book. Read New X-Men, 114 on. Uh, it is all on Marvel Unlimited. There are trade paperbacks, a plenty, hardcovers, omnibuy, plenty of ways to read this. But if you haven't, we are still getting through spoilers. So Cassandra Nova is the, the twin that... Um, It's weird to try to explain it.
2: Charles Xavier and Cassandra Nova were twins. Their powers developed while still in the womb, which is a thing we have seen from other mutants previously. Because you had two extremely powerful psychics sharing one womb, one bloodstream, and one source of nutrition, they decided they had to fight for their survival because otherwise one might cannibalize the other. Charles won and triggered a partial miscarriage, which expelled Cassandra when she was still too young to be considered viable. She did somehow manage to live. Morrison was very vague on how that happened. The idea, I think, was that being an extremely powerful psychic sustained her. But that is Cassandra Nova. Wow. (laughs) That's why you're the storyteller
0: and I'm the yapping head. But you're such a good yapping head. (laughs) Uh, Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, And so this is also Cassandra Nova's first appearance in the X-Canon. And this first three-issue story arc, the first issue, she shows up and she's sort of like playing mind games, and then it gets really dark and weird. And by the second issue is when she triggers the Sentinels to go and commit genocide on the mutant island of Genosha, killing over 16 million mutants. I could close my eyes and see those final few panels from 115, uh, the final Mm -hmm. few pages where the Sentinel shows up, on Genosha and you've got Emma Frost teaching students and Negasonic Teenage Warhead talking about the dream that she's had, that they're all going to die, and the countdown. There's so many affecting moments from that issue. It's that countdown of the number of mutant lives shrinking. And it's so, to me, it's one of the great things about any kind of storytelling, but particularly comics, like that way that it can affect you. Every time you experience it, even though you've experienced it over and over and over again.
2: Yeah, so brilliantly paced. Everything about it, the combination of the writing and the visuals, watching the lights blink out on Cerebro is just heartbreaking and it stays that way.
1: Looking back at those elements, at those character moments, at the character specifics, but the character interactions, you know, I think of some of the stuff that happens, like just the little back and forth between Scott and, and Wolverine is like, it's just one of those books that so quickly gets to the heart of these characters and the relationships and just the general team dynamics. And then the story, you know, simultaneously emerges from that. You just get such a great sense of where this group is together. I'm just curious to hear your thoughts about a team book like this. What's striking to you about a team book like this? What are the challenges that you as a writer know come with writing a team book and how you know, E for Extinction handles that or excels with that?
2: Well, E for Extinction really does excel with that. Morrison excels at that throughout his run because he is incredibly good at balancing the voices. One of the issues I think every author is going to have with a team book is even if you got to handpick your team from every available character in the Marvel universe, there is going to be a character you like better than others. And there is going to be a character you like less than others. And being fair to every character is difficult. Making sure that you keep track of the fact that every character wants something a little bit different is difficult. So keeping in mind that 20 people who are working toward the same goal will be working toward that goal for 20 different reasons can be just as hard as making sure that you don't downplay your less favorite character in order to play up your more favorite character. And Morrison does just an absolutely beautiful job with that. Part of that is that he is being allowed to make permanent status quo changes. Emma was not supposed to be on that team. It was actually supposed to be Peter Rasputin, Colossus, but he had been killed by another writer shortly before Morrison's run was set to start. And uh, at the time, Morrison was not allowed to resurrect him, presumably because it had been such a recent death. Morrison needed a bruiser. He knew he could write well. And what he settled on was, can I give Emma Frost a physical mutation that makes her a bruiser? We've gotten so many good stories collectively out of the fact that she can now turn into living organic diamond.
0: What was your reaction as such an Emma stand to seeing this new possibility for Emma and seeing her turn into that diamond and what that meant for her before you even got into the stories? Do you remember like, like
2: going, what? Giving Emma a way to not die was the best thing anyone has ever done. <laughs> and then later in his run, they freaking shatter her with a hammer. Yeah. I don't think it's a spoiler to say a character died 20 years ago if we know that they are active in modern titles <laughs> because clearly they got better. That's what we do in comics. It's comics.
0: It's, it's, it's okay. I want to flip that around. So you as a writer, how do you approach if you are thinking about killing a character? Do you think about how that may affect your readers and the fans of the character? What goes on in your brain because you are so passionate about the things that you love and you know that there are people on the other side who feel the same way?
2: When I'm writing in fiction, if I want to kill a character, the first thing I look at is how much does this character represent the group that they are a part of? There is so little positive trans representation in fiction just across the board, unless you're talking about an issues book. The entire book is about the experience of being trans. Just There are so few trans characters existing in fiction in the places where real trans people exist, where the entire point of their character is not their gender, that killing one of them is taking out like 15, 20% of the positive representation. So as a rule, if I can avoid killing a character where the amount of representation they'll take with them is more than 5%, I do. It is not kind to people because I remember being the little girl sitting on the floor of the comic book store. And when I say little girl, I mean seven. I had just been handed the issue where Gwen Stacy died for the first time. And Gwen Stacy was me. You know, she was a smart blonde who was completely obsessed with science. She was good at math. She did her homework. She followed the rules. She didn't have superpowers. That character was the closest I have ever been given to an avatar within the Marvel universe. And so I just sat on the comic book store and sobbed. I don't ever want to do that to people. Now, that being said, if you give me an opportunity to hurt a large group of people by killing a character without taking out a large quantity of the representation that they might identify with, oh yeah. You know, one of my first really successful books, two thirds of the way through, I kill my first person narrator like mid-sentence, we're done and we pick up the next chapter with our new narrator. I still receive death threats about that book, which means I know I wrote it right. Readers are passionate. I am so far from the most passionate reader out there, and I'm fairly passionate. So I do, as a writer, want to make you feel something. All writers are emotionally manipulative. That is the purpose of storytelling. And I want to make you feel it, but I don't want to hurt you so badly that it doesn't heal. I,
0: I want to go back to to the art side of things for New X-Men real quick. Um, something Tucker and I have talked about on the show is artists have different ways of telling their stories. And some artists, to me, when I look at them, they have the ability to capture them. It looks like a freeze frame of the action. And I think Frank is one of those artists who does that so spectacularly well. He uses it to some effect here with like blood in midair or elements here, Um I I look at this and I I think there's just so many things about the art in this book that I glom onto and I I adore so much. And Sean, and you've talked about, you know, Grant and the writer. We've talked a little bit about Frank. We've talked about characters such as Emma. For you as a a fan, were there ever any artists that you searched out or was it always like, this is my character. These writers were the ones that I went to or were there any artists that you like searched out?
2: Alan Davis. I adore the way that He draws basically everything. He is not afraid to make unattractive characters unattractive. He's also not afraid to make characters that you would think would be unattractive attractive. You know, he has a great diversity of shape and form. Mike Plug actually is a huge favorite of mine, though not as much for his Marvel work. You know, he did a lot of Marvel work, he did Ghost Rider, and he was really good. I love Plug because of his work on Creepy and Eerie, which were old Warren Publications horror comics. And he just had a softness of shape and a roundness that, it's hard to explain why I find it so appealing, but you know, it is, it is just brilliant. In more modern artists, I have to say, I have an enormous soft spot for Takeshi Maezawa. And did even before he drew one of my ghost spider runs. Though I made that poor man draw a T Rex made entirely of bees, but um, (laughs) he has just a a motion to him. He has a sense of flow, which I think is really important in an action comic. But yeah, mostly I would seek out a lot of Plug and Davis when I was looking for specific artists. Cool.
1: In this same exact vein. I have to mention Ugly John in this story, which just feels like a character built for Quietly to do like backflips on the page. And then similarly, I think the colors in these issues are incredible. And I think they do so much work in terms of the scale specifically of the story, whether it's like through kind of lens flares type stuff, the glare that kind of, Peaks over the mountains at certain times. Just so many different things like that that I think just add and are just such amazing generally additive measures to the grandness and the scale of this story.
2: It it bothers me a little how often we skip over the colorists and we just don't address them. You know, I am on the Hugo Awards nominations list for Best Graphic Story for the Ghost Spider Run Dog Days Are Over. And when they sent out the nomination, they credited me, they credited Takishi, and they credited Rossi, who is the other artist that worked on that arc. They did not credit Clayton Cowles, who did all of our colors, and who basically had to do two entirely different comic books for every single issue, because Earth-616 has a palette and Earth-65 has a palette. So the fact that we ignore this incredibly essential part of what makes comics such a gripping medium does bug me. I have the very first ever appearance of Emma Frost above my desk. Like I literally have the poster that was distributed to comic book stores six months prior to the oh, issue awesome. that introduced her. I know who drew it. I have no idea who colored it, because that is lost knowledge.
0: Yeah, Brian Haberlin credited here as high-fi design. I'm glad we're talking about colors, especially when Cassandra. Starts manifesting in the Xavier school, and she's trying to take over Cerebra. And it's that glow is so unorthodox, and it just looks so ir- intentionally alien and weird. And then the black bug room that she traps Scott in for a second, she's like, Everyone has a black bug room, which is a nightmare intentionally. Oh, yeah. And it's but like the coloring there is so dang
1: good. It's never not surprising to me how many losses the X-Men take at the start of this story. And I guess just how built up your hatred for Cassandra Nova is like, as if you weren't rooting for the X-Men enough at the start of the story, like the way things just keep tumbling down and down and down for them that you just have you you're left with nothing alongside them, but each other. And, You just are kind of pulling for them in an entire new way. We're talking 20 years later. It's still so striking. It is still so crazy in those different ways.
2: Right, and you're hitting on the thing that has been hardest for me over this hour, which is staying in just E for Extinction. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. Right. Morrison, really, with his entire new X-Men run, I cannot recommend that run highly enough. It's all on Marvel Unlimited. As Ryan said, the trade paperbacks are still available. You can pick them up. It is absolutely worth your time if you like the X-Men at all. But you can really tell that Morrison is both a master storyteller working at the height of his powers and that he has the faith of editorial behind him. And there are a couple decisions that he made and then had to back out of, none of which happened in E for Extinction, so I'm not going to specify what they are. But if you're reading and you go, that feels odd. Just Google it. You will find him talking about being told to change it. But everything else, editorial trusted him to tell this big story. So every story arc is a domino. And he has set them up so perfectly, beginning with the destruction of Genosha and ending with the event that ends his run. It is one of the more impeccably coherent runs, I think, of the entire modern Marvel comics era. Mm.
0: Can't disagree with you. And it's so foundational. Um, Mm -hmm. The entire run has, you look at every story arc, has a character or an event or something that has been built upon and has been, you know, fundamental for what the X-Men are over the last twenty years. But if you even take a macro view of these first three issues, we've got secondary mutations, we've got the elimination of almost the entirety of the mutant population or a giant portion of them, which is still has ripple effects to today. And you have Charles Xavier coming out as mutant at the end of the third issue at the right, the the heart of this. And then that sort of like sprinkling through what it means to be mutants and how they are looked at, man, it's, it's real good comics.
2: It doesn't even go into the characters that he introduced, you know, all of the changes he made that don't get unmade, even as we try. Morrison, I think got what we all want. I don't think anybody goes into an ongoing title because when you sign up to write an ongoing superhero title, even if it's just an issue, you know they're not yours. These are not your characters. You don't get to take them home at the end of the day, but you will probably spend the rest of your life being blamed for everything that the new authors do. It is a responsibility, but it's a responsibility that comes with strings. And you know that. I think everyone who is willing to sign on to write a Cape comic or another licensed property for one of the big comic publishers dreams of having the arc that changes things the thing that cannot be retconned without gutting the property and morrison accomplished that the current status quo could not exist without morrison even though it doesn't look like morrison well
0: said
1: when we're talking about how tightly constructed the story is, Sean, is that something that you do? Are you someone with the cork board with 100 index cards on there, laying everything out before you you know, write a line of dialogue, or are you someone who can jump in and out, mix those things up?
2: So I was born after 1970, which means that I am someone who takes a billion notes on my computer. I have private wikis. I have files and files and files. Cork boards and cats do not mix. It does not end well. But I am constantly thinking about how everything impacts everything else. You know, my plan with Ghost Spider, if I had been able to continue from where we were, one of the little subplots that doesn't really matter because it's not a superhero thing, it's a character building thing. She was going to wind up having to live in a dorm with some 616 girls because she couldn't go back to 65 from where we left it off. She doesn't own any clothes at this point. Her suit is all of her clothes. She is basically naked all the time. Like, you disrupt her suit, she gonna have a problem. (laughs) I spent my entire time in the spider office pushing back against overly sexual presentations of Gwen. I would object to cover artists. I was a jerk about that because she's a young character. She doesn't need to be drawn that way. And meanwhile, the whole time, I'm writing her running (laughs) starkers around two different versions of New York. But her roommates were going to be very confused. Why do you never need to do laundry? Where are your clothes? Are you rich? Are you throwing your pants away every time you wear them? What's happening here? So she was going to have to buy some clothes as part of maintaining a masquerade. And I think through that stuff to a degree that is sometimes frustrating for editors because they're just like, Shauna, no one cares. (laughs) Literally, no one cares but you. (laughs) But I care enough for everyone, so. (laughs) I think the single best-received run of both, technically I had two Ghost Spider runs because I had Spider Gwen Ghost Spider and then I had Ghost Spider. But I think the single best-received issue of either of those runs was issue four of Spider Gwen Ghost Spider. I had originally been been supposed to write a three-issue Spider Geddon tie-in. And at the end of it, we have killed multiple spiders... And we have shut down the web of life and destiny. So it is no longer possible to casually travel the multiverse. And so I went to my editor and said, I need permission to do an issue with no superhero action. And he he said, why? That is a thing we fight you on constantly. It is hard to get you to have your characters fight. Why do you want an issue with no superhero action? I so said, because Gwen is the only spider who can still travel from world to world. She needs to be the one that shows up with the wartime telegrams. Mm. She needs to tell people that they have lost the people that they are waiting for because otherwise no one's ever gonna and i was given permission to do that issue it has the single most striking cover of my entire run it's a gorgeous cover uh it's a beautiful issue i love the heck out of it and it is the single issue i've received the most thank you fan mail for because a lot of us want the ball games we want the x-men playing baseball we want the trip to the mall We want Gwen Stacy ringing doorbells and saying, I am so sorry, your Peter Parker died a hero. He is not coming home.
0: Yeah. Tucker and I have talked about that a lot. Mostly it's me being like, oh, man, I love the issue after the big event. I love the cool down. My favorite storyline is Executioner Song because it hit me at the right time and everything. And I, I still read it and I still have a great fondness for it. But the issue after that the like songs end epilogue issue has the cover of Xavier struggling because he had gotten the use of his legs for a short period of time. And it's him and it's Jubilee and like they're re- rebuilding Harry's hideaway. And like, it's all these little character beats. That's the stuff mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with you right there. That's the kind of, that's the, that's the stuff I sink my teeth into yeah. as much or more than like a big fight punch issue.
1: I have to mention while we're on the subject, of those Ghost Spider covers. The Jorge Molina covers on there are some of my favorite of like the last five years. I think about them independent of this conversation. I think about them often. I'll just go check them out. I try and use them whenever we're talking about Gwen on Marvel.com, all those things. I just had to mention it because they are so, so good.
2: They are spectacular. I really appreciate the fact that he does not, for the most part, sell art online. He sells art at conventions, which means I still have half a prayer once COVID unlocks the world <laughs> you can do of it. owning some of those. <laughs> well, I was kind of a jerk with the very first comic I wrote for Marvel. I stalked my artist to get him to sell me the cover art. So I have the cover art of my very first issue of X Men Gold Annual Number Two. I'm not sure how it got greenlit. Honestly, it's beautiful art. I love it. The flashlight beams form the X. It is so important to me. It is probably the physical possession that means the most to me. But there are rabbits all over the cover. And if you really look closely, two of those rabbits are engaged in making more rabbits.
0: I'm looking (laughs) at it right now, yeah. (laughs) Tremendous. Yep. Well done. That's, That's great. Uh, um well Sean, thank you for being on the show. Uh to all of our listeners, you can go read X-Men Gold annual number two. You can read many issues of Ghost Spider and Spider Spider Gwen Ghost Spider. Yeah. And and <laughs> Ghost Spider. Uh read them all on Marvel Unlimited and more. What else you got, Shannon, that you want people to check out? Maybe that they've never read some of your prose. Where should they start?
2: Um, honestly, if you want to ju- if you want to start with my prose and you're a superhero person, start with a book called Middle Game, which is a reference to the mid stage of a chess game. It is about time travel and quantum entanglement and evil alchemy, and it's basically a superhero origin story. If you are not into that, or if the fact that the book is 400 pages long seems too daunting for you, check out Every Heart a Doorway, which is a standard portal fantasy, kids traveling through magical doors, having adventures and coming back. Or right now, you could pick up a supporting membership for the 2021 Worldcon, which would give you the opportunity to vote in the Hugo Awards, including the Best Graphic Story category, which has some amazing nominees this year. Myself for Ghost Spider, uh, Marjorie Lou for monstrous Kieran Gillen for everything he's ever touched. Pretty sure we could get his laundry list nominated and <laughs> the genius, you know, that sort of thing. $50 gets you voting rights and we'll get you the Hugo voters packet, which will include my entire October day series. That's about a $200 value, even discounting everything else that's going to be in there. If you can spell my name, you can find me. I am not a difficult to locate person. Um, Thank you for joining us. Y'all are lovely. <laughs> thanks, Sean. I don't actually get to sign out. I just had no idea how to finish. <laughs> that, that was sentence. no, that we was, perfect. That. <laughs> that
1: was so perfect. that was great. <laughs> thanks, Shannon.
2: Thank you. Yay! Thanks for having me, guys. Of course.
1: Thank you so much. This was great.
0: Big thanks again to Sean and for coming on the show again for being just amazing. Uh, ding dang delight. That wraps it up for us. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bacala.
1: Jill DeVos is our director of audio.
0: And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And, you know, Brad loves E for Extinction so much. One of his many, many tattoos is actually Brad for Brad Stinction. And, like, it's just like his whole thing. Him and his Brads, his big league of Brad, they get it, right?
1: We love you,
0: Brad. I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel,
1: your universe.